are going to be talking over the next week and a half to hopefully all of the candidates who want to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. First, we are kicking this off with somebody you've heard. Well, you used to hear on a pretty regular basis on this radio station, Paul Vallis, who is uh, turning out to be the front runner or at the, at the very least one of the front runners in this race, which means that we have a lot of questions to be asking him. Mr. Vallis, welcome back to the WCPT Airwaves. Well, thanks for having me. You mean if I was at the back of the pack, you wouldn't want to ask me any questions? Oh, no. I would probably be nicer to you, though, if you were at the back of the pack and really didn't have a chance to win. You know, that's one of the problems of being a front runner is we, you know, we've got to hold your feet to the fire, Mr. Vallis. That's right. That's right. That's what my wife told me. She said, be careful what you wish for because you're going to get it. <laughs> I know. I know. Your campaign is on fire. And I'm I'm not okay. We're going to ask you about this whole uh, Channel Eleven thing that uh, that I frankly I'm not sure I grasp completely. Uh, Paris shoots uh, reported first that you know did you really live in the city of Chicago because you have a home in Palos Heights? You took a homestead uh, exemption there, but you have an apartment in Bridgeport. And, you know, were you really a Chicago resident? Now, to his credit, Paris didn't leave it alone. He kept digging. And he uh, just tweeted a little while ago that the Cook County Assessor has a new statement out saying it has concluded its investigation and determined that the Vallises did not improperly claim a homeowner's exemption on the Palos Heights property. So you... So that means, I guess, the homeowner's exemption was proper, but does that mean that that's your main residence? Well, let me respond. Let me respond. As you well know, having done your show uh, many a time before becoming uh, a a candidate, my wife and I live apart in part uh, because when we returned from Philadelphia and I went off to New Orleans, uh, my wife basically said, that's it. I'm not following you anymore. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I went to New Orleans, and, of course, she was smart enough to um, send at least one or two of the kids with me. And, of course, as you know, my youngest son went with me everywhere. Um, my youngest son passed away. So, you know, so I went to Bridgeport and lived in Bridgeport. Uh, when I took over the schools there, of course, I spent five years in New Orleans uh, rebuilding the schools there. And, of course, I, I spent considerable time living both in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, after the earthquake, doing doing uh, relief work, and of course, also time in Chile. Uh, so the so basically, you you're saying you don't live anywhere. You like live yeah. in like the back seat of your car. Or suffice to say, my wife has always said, uh, "You go off and do your own thing. Uh, I'm going to live right here next door to my 89 year old parents, and I'm going to uh, keep an eye on your 94 year old mother." And uh, you go off and, uh, you know, if you win, I don't know. Uh, Maybe I'll move back in with you and maybe I won't. But the bottom line is, uh, first and foremost, there's no question of my residency in Chicago. It is established. Uh, I live there. I sleep there. I watch my movies there every night. Just ask my neighbor. Uh, You know, we wish we could afford more than one home, you know, but we can't. Well, speaking Uh, of which, there was also some reporting that there's a property in Moni that you own in trust, and there was some question about, about I don't know, whether or not you sometimes live there. Can you explain that or well, tell me about that? Happened, let, me, let me tell you what happened. They really made a monumental error, and it's the second time there's been some collusion between certain people from 
from certain uh, of the campaigns and reporters who have reported before doing fact, doing any fact checking. If you remember, about six months ago, uh, they tweeted a story that I had uh, once voted, I had registered in the Republican primary to vote, and then, of course, they had a backtrack when they discovered that the Secretary of State's office had actually made a mistake with my address. So they were actually reporting the voter registration of my very conservative neighbor. (laughs) Well, you just you just um, predicted my second question, which was going to be, you know, you're being accused of being a Republican. Right. Well, let me respond. Let me respond to your other point. And, And I think they've they posted a retraction. So late, so yesterday night before the campaign, uh, before the campaign debate on Fox News, uh, we get a call five minutes before the debate, basically making that accusation that we seem to have a second homestead exemption. It seems to be in Moniz. And we, of course, said, well, that's not true. We'll send you our, our W-2s. You can take a look at our tax forms. You know, my wife uh, owns, uh, has a home in the suburbs. Uh, hey, at least I'm still married, right? And, uh, and no, we don't have a cottage in Michigan or a home in California or, you know, we have so many, so many individuals in elected office who have actually have more than one home. We, uh, so, but, but the point that I wanted to make was, uh, they said, oh my God, you know, we said we don't have a home in Moni. We're certainly not claiming another property tax exemption. And we said, why don't you wait until we check it out? Well, you know, don't let a good lead interfere with a story, uh, a, a fact checking be damned. And sure enough, uh, they reported that, well, they have a second homestead exemption on home in Moni. Well, what they independently did was they actually looked at uh, the, the, the people who had sold our home or sold the home, uh, the home to, uh, you know, to, to us, uh, they then moved to Moni, bought their own home, built their own home, and took a homestead exemption. So they were counting two homestead exemptions. They were counting the homestead exemption that my wife claims and the homestead exemption that the people who had sold us the home were claiming in Moni. So they, of course, uh, uh, posted a retraction, and of course, the you know Kagi, you know, uh, decided to uh, he issued that the investigation had concluded probably the fastest investigation in history. So the bottom line is this was clearly a second attempt to try to embarrass me that backfired, that blew up in their face. Look, uh, the bottom line is the city's on fire here. I mean, you know, violent crime is up again. Violent crime uh, uh, through, uh, through February is up like 60%. They're averaging 100 uh, stolen vehicles a day. A report just came out about the abysmal academic performance of the Chicago public schools. They still haven't recovered from the 15 months that they were closed. Of course, uh, a, report, a, a more recent report just the other day said that half the kids who are, who are still registered in the school district are truant. So these are not the issues that they want to discuss. And I have had nauseam on your show for so many times, as well as on other shows, talked about the issues, the issues of rising crime, the issues of substandard schools that people are fleeing in record number, and the fact that despite $6 billion in COVID money, we have raised property taxes $900 million. Nobody wants to debate me on the issues. So they're looking for side issues. But this is, this is the victim, you know, this is what happens when you're ahead and they can't challenge you on the issues. They'd rather make up stuff or they'd rather make accusations that ultimately are proven to be false 
and then kind of sheepishly apologize and then go on to try to find the next opportunity to make uh, an outlandish claim. Before we did the WCPT mayoral forum, we all collaborated on the questions. And I have to I have to admit to you that three times I went back and I said, no, this question for Paul Vallis isn't tough enough. No, it's too easy. He'll answer this really fast. No, you got to make it harder. We have to make it harder. So, you know, I'm I'm just coming clean right here, right now. I did that. And um, OK, let's talk about you're very welcome. I, you know, um, as as, uh, as Julius Caesar said on the eyes of Mars, et tu, et tu, Joan. Um, so let's talk about schools. You know, the rap on you is that you're not, even though you were CEO, you're not really a, a supporter of public schools. You uh, create charter schools wherever you go. Uh, for a multitude of reasons, one of which might be to weaken um, school teacher unions. That's the accusation. How do you respond? Well, you know, first of all, uh, let me respond by saying this. Charter schools are public schools. And when I was in the Chicago public schools, we actually opened only 18 charter schools. And let me point out that we opened the charter schools in partnership with the teachers union because Albert Shanker was one of the, the I'm a three-decade leader of the American Federation of, of uh, Teachers was a strong advocate and one of the original, you know, uh, advocates for charter schools. In fact, we met with him. But we opened a limited number of charter schools. Uh, some of my so-called critics out there constantly seem to confuse me with another top superintendent who actually became Barack Obama's education secretary. So the bottom line is programs like Renaissance 2010 and some of the other programs that they like to criticize now uh, did not happen on my watch. But let me point out that when we ran the Chicago Public Schools, uh, they had lost 115,000 kids uh, in the previous 15 years, and they had had eight strikes in 15 years. And we not only uh, brought union peace, we raised teachers' salaries 22%. We didn't have to lay off any teachers because our schools grew. We opened, we opened 30 new school buildings, renovated 48 schools, tore down all the pre-fast schools in the south and west side, and we put magnet programs in neighborhood schools. And yes, we opened 18 charters, but guess what? A large number of those charters were alternative schools for, for students who had dropped out, left, or had been incarcerated. That's how the uh, Youth Connection Charter School uh, network of schools opened up. So at the end of the day, I think we used car charters strategically. But since my critics, particularly from the Chicago Teachers Union, are so quick to distort my record or confuse me with other, other super, future superintendents, I want to point out a couple things. Uh, besides being endorsed by the former head of the Chicago Teachers Union, uh, Debbie Lynch, and, and, and uh, hundreds, hundreds of veteran educators, principals, and administrators, many of whom became superintendents, who used to be CTU members, just remember, this current union leadership shut the public school system down for 15 consecutive months with devastating consequences. Fewer than 10% of black children in Chicago are computing at grade level. And in fact, I think it's 6%, yet they're still graduating 80 to 90% of the individuals in the schools. And let me point out that since 2019, 
There have been 200 murders of school-age youth, 17 years and younger, and 8% of the, of the killers, 9% of the shooters, almost 50% of the carjackings, arrests for carjackings, have been of school-age youth, 17 years and younger. You know what they all have in common? 95% of them were not in school. And I want to make one more point, too. And I want your listeners to listen very closely about this. There are 56,000 kids attending public not-for-profit charter schools in Chicago. These charters have emerged um, um, many times from community-based organizations looking for better school alternatives. 96% of the kids are black and Latino. And those charter schools have about a 75% approval rating. And do you know that the school that the school board, under pressure from the current leadership of the Chicago Teachers Union, will not allow those children to use the empty or mostly empty public school buildings? So you'll have a school like Manly with 67 kids and 27 faculty, a school built for 1,200, and the charter school just a couple miles away with 400 kids or 500 kids. Uh, kids being educated in a warehouse are denied access to that public building, to that public building. If that's not sinful, if that's not irresponsible, if that's not punitive, I don't know what is. So I am not, not and never will be, allow myself to be lectured by the current leadership of the Chicago Teachers Union because they have done permanent damage to a whole generation of kids and they continue to discriminate against 56,000 children, mostly black and Latino, who are denied access to even the buildings that are closed. Even if they want to rent those buildings, they will not allow them to occupy their buildings. Paul, you and I talked about this a lot during the pandemic, and we don't, com- our, our views don't completely line up. I, I, I understand. I'm not faulting any of your statistics. I know that kids who were supposed to be learning remotely didn't do it. There were a lot, the crime went up a lot. A lot of young people were wandering the streets when they should have been studying. But you, we did have a pandemic. And while maybe the solution we found wasn't perfect, had classes continued, you know, we would have had students dying and teachers dying, particularly up until there was a vaccination. So, you know, it's it's I do understand that there were a lot of kids who were uh, really set back in their education. I do understand that crime went up, but I don't know that there was a perfect solution. And I don't know that, you know, if if we had kept the schools open, maybe now you and I would be arguing over the fact of, how many teachers, you know, got sick and, and died or how many students got sick and died. It's, it's a, we've had this discussion before. So let's, for now, let's just table it because I have to also ask you, um, do you support a woman's right to bodily autonomy? Cause again, another thing that uh, people are saying is that, you know, you're, um, you don't support abortion rights. Yeah, well, you know, first of all, I have always supported abortion rights. I, we had that very discussion on your show after after the Roe versus Wade decision, and we thought that that was an outrageous decision. And look, I have I have I'm a lifelong Democrat who has run for public office consistently as a Democrat, and in all my elections, I have always gotten 100 percent approval from from Planned Parenthood and all the other advocacy groups. So at the end of the day. I have always been 100% supportive of women's reproductive rights, and I will continue 
to be supportive of not only women who live in Chicago, but anyone who comes to Chicago. They will always have their rights protected, period. They're just saying this because, once again, you know, they want to run against, uh, you know, if they if they can't run against uh, uh, a, a conservative, they're going to have to invent one. So so working for Don Clark Nets, consistently being supported by those organizations, consistently having 100 percent approval ratings. And, and not only that, going as so far on, on, on other issues as putting domestic partners in all the city contracts in the 1990s when, before it was popular to do so, just unilaterally, or even supporting marriage equality when they called it gay marriage when I ran for governor 21 years ago when none of the other politicians, I mean, it took uh, uh, President Obama and, and, and then and Vice President Biden, I, I think, another decade before they embraced that. I've always been ahead of the game. So they're just going to keep on saying it over and over. And you know me better than that. We've talked about this in the past. I mean, that accusation is particularly false and it's outrageous, as well as the accusation that somehow I'm a Republican. We asked uh, the listeners if they wanted to text in any questions for you. And um, we just got a text from Mark. And uh, thank you, Mr. Vallis. Now I am getting grief as well uh, because Mark's text is stop patronizing us with an FOP right wing Republican mayoral candidate. That endorsement from the FOP is uh, still uh, in- rankling some people. Talk about that. Well, well, you know, let me point out that I don't get to pick the, the uh, union leaders. And just as I have, have uh, I'll have to negotiate with the president of the FOP, I'll also have to negotiate with the head of the teachers union. And so I'll be negotiating with Stacey Davis Gates as well as Brandon Johnson. So at the end of the day, the unions picked their own leaders. Look, I am supported by the rank-and-file cops. That's why I got that endorsement. But let me point out, as you know, because we have talked about this uh, even long before I was a candidate, I was invited to come in and to help settle a contract that had that contract not been settled, the cops had not not had had a contract or pay increase in four years. There were probably well over 2,000 police officers eligible to retire who would have left. And, and the, the district has lost 2,000 officers the last two years, which is why half the high-priority 911 calls are not being responded to in real time because they don't have police cars available. So the point is, I came in and negotiated a collective bargaining agreement, an eight-year agreement that kept that massive exodus from happening. And when I got into the negotiations, I made two demands. Demand number one, demand number one, was that uh, that agreement had to include all the accountability provisions that were in the sergeant's contract. They, and, and that is what all the editorial boards were advocating for. And, and uh, number two, I could not, I would not accept any money for doing the work. And I, in fact, didn't. They donated the money to a children's charity. Nor would I uh, accept any money if I ever received an FOP endorsement. So at the end of the day, I like to think that I did the marriage job for her. They all praised the contract, the contract I settled. And so I stepped in. The rank and file cops of which, of which I come from a family of police officers, firefighters, and teachers, they supported me. That is the reason that I got the endorsement. And that's the reason that I'm beginning to get the endorsement of, of, other, uh, of uh, other unions. I don't get to pick who heads the unions, I have to negotiate with the person who heads the unions. 
But I believe that my ability to appeal to the rank-and-file police officers gives me great leverage because if we are really going to restore the police department and implement the consent decree and bring real police accountability, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to find a way to cooperate. We're going to have to find a way to, to, you know, to uh, generate a lot of support. I'm going to have to be, be able to be in a position where I, can, where I can push the union in the right direction through appealing to the work and file, the rank and file, their rank and file members, and that is what I've always been able to do, and that is why I've never nego- and I've never, of all the contracts I've negotiated in four different cities, I've never had a strike, I've never had a rain delay, and I've always had contract settlements that have given given workers increased uh, increased compensation. You know, Paul, when I first started working at this radio station. For a long time, there was an essay by political consultant Don Rose that was taped to the front door. And in that essay, Don Rose argued that we are Democrats. We are a big tent. We are not maybe as as narrowly focused as Republicans, but you can be a Democrat. I mean, we had uh, Dan Lipinski, who was steadfastly against abortion, and he was a, a Democrat. You know, Don Rose's argument is that we are a big tent. Some of us are very progressive. Some of us are mer- very moderate. Some of us are very conservative. But it doesn't mean that we're not all Democrats. And that was uh, shown to me as sort of the guiding principle of my show. You are a Democrat. Some would say a conservative Democrat. Maybe you'd even say that yourself. But I get a lot of newsletters in this job from a lot of the various progressive organizations around the state. And they are very worried about your candidacy. Your being the next mayor of Chicago frightens them. Why do you think that is? And what can you do to address that? Well, you know, the point is, well, look, uh, you know, I, you know, there's always going to be the groups that are going to try to, to, to scare people or, or try to generalize or misrepresent candidates' positions on the issues and things like that. I mean, the bottom line is I'm about public safety, I'm about quality schools, and I'm about uh, taking this $28 billion uh, 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 monstrosity of a budget that the mayor controls and investing it in ways that demonstrates that really creates uh, equal opportunities and, and, and in ways that creates real investment. The bottom line is I have a track record. I have a track record for balancing budgets, affordable housing, infrastructure, ensuring that all neighborhoods have beat cops who can respond to 911 calls. My transformation in the Chicago Public Schools has been praised by three presidents. I rebuilt an entire school system in, in New Orleans after the devastation of Hurricane Katrina that's been praised by three presidents, including uh, President Barack Obama, who came who came to visit New Orleans and to praise us after we had concluded the FEMA settlement. So my record, and it, I was way out ahead on domestic partners and on marriage equality. I mean, Rob Gorbich ran ads attacking me downstate on my position on marriage equality in 2001. So the bottom line is all I can, I have a body of work that is there. Find me a candidate that has done the international work that I have. I mean, I went to Haiti 40 times. Maybe I went there so many times because my, my youngest son, who died of, died of long-term drug addictions, was only clean when I had him in Haiti, and I couldn't, he couldn't get access to drugs. But not only did we take care of 50,000 Haitians for six years, 
But I stayed as finance chair of Sean Penn's organization for 10 years. We have done 2.7 million vaccinations in eight different cities since COVID started. Two point, since the vaccine became available. 2.7 million. That was an organization that I was on the board of. That was an organization that I was financial chair of. So you find someone who has built more schools, has done more in BEWB, has provided more support for families, or for that matter, has done more stuff to battle COVID than me. And if you can find that person, then you should vote for that person. But people are just going to have to, you know, do their own research and do their own fact-checking because this election, I'm, you know, I sit there at those forums and I hear the same answer to multiple questions. The question is who has a body of work? And, I, you know, and, you know, I haven't been praised by three, by three presidents because I've been ineffective. I've been praised by three presidents because I've risen to every invitation to come in to crisis situations and make things better. And, you know, had I been sitting around like public servants milking contracts or padding my pension salary, my wife wouldn't have to be going to work at midnight at TSA so that our, we so that we can have so that we can have uh, uh, we can have good health insurance. So at the end of the day, my body of work is there, and uh, I'm going to run on my record. And obviously, some people may may decide not to inform themselves, and there's nothing I can do about it. All I can do is state my case and let the voters decide. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it is always interesting and informative to talk with you, and you bring a lot of passion to what you believe in, and you share that passion with me and my radio audience. Thank you again for being here. Well, thank you, John.